Well, please take your Bibles out while you remain standing, and let me have you turn to Mark chapter 9 this morning. God, in the gospel of his Son, makes his eternal counsels known, and we're turning to the gospel of Mark this morning to read what God has for us today. We're going to read verses 2 through 13. We've looked at part of that, the first part of that last time. Uh, We'll wrap that up this morning. Verse 2 of Mark chapter 9, follow along and give attention to this reading. This is God speaking to us in his word today. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come, first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the use to which you put your word. We thank you that it lets us know of Christ, it reminds us of our need for Christ, it reminds us, uh, particularly here in these words, of the ministry of Christ and of the nature of Christ and of the, the things that he did, the things that he went through for our sake. And we ask, Lord, that as we look at these things that you would continue to be teaching us as we work through this gospel of your Son. And we ask that you would bless our time together, for we ask it in his most wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. Our particular interest this morning, as I said, is going to be the second half of this passage. Um, I left a longer gap between the first half and and our verses for this morning than I intended to, I made the mistake of looking up, and then when I looked back down, the words had hidden from me, so I had to find where I was. 
Um, But verses 9 through 13 is what we're going to be uh, interested in this morning because in those verses are really a continuation of and what I've termed a postscript on the event in the first part of the chapter, the transfiguration. Because there, uh, as we just read, Jesus, just a week after he had revealed to them that he, Jesus, is the Messiah and that he is going to suffer many things, as he said, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Six days after that, now he takes these three disciples of his up into a high mountain. And there, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, several things happened. First, he was transfigured before them. That is, his appearance changed before them. It was altered so that his face shone like the sun. And even his clothing became radiant and themselves shone forth a brilliant light. And by this, something of the the glory of Jesus was revealed to the disciples as the veil of his human nature that, that hid his glory during his days on earth, that was for a moment there pulled back in a manner of speaking. And the glory of God, which Jesus himself possesses as his own because he is God, That glory shone forth. Also there, in verses 4 through 5, we saw that Jesus was joined in conversation by none other than Moses and Elijah, of whom we read a few moments ago. They're seen talking with Jesus, talking to him about his coming passion, his coming uh, suffering and his death, and what he was going to accomplish by it. They appeared there with Jesus linking uh, him with, to, the, to, to the redemptive history of the prophets of old. And then finally, in verse 7, we saw that a cloud surrounded them and that out of that cloud, the voice of God himself came and specifically added the divine uh, witness to the others with his voice saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. A divine, audible witness to the deity and the glory of Jesus Christ. And then suddenly, as suddenly as it began, it was over. And the text says they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Elijah and Moses withdraw. They had borne witness to Christ. And with that, their task on this mountain at this time was complete. And they returned to glory, where they, along with all of the saints who had ever lived up to that point and died, and the ones since then, where all of them will await the arrival of Jesus, uh, as they did uh, and as they witnessed after his work here had been completed. And so Elijah and Moses leave him to that work. Because with this event and the end of it, there was still for Jesus ministry to do. He's still on his mission. He is still on on task. And Jesus still has the most important part of his work still to complete. And so, perhaps to Peter's dismay, tents are not erected, as he had suggested, 
But after the transfiguration, it is time for them to come back down the mountain, as the text says, and resume the fight against the enemies of the gospel, to resume the proclamation of the gospel for Christ, to resume his journey now towards Jerusalem, where he will accomplish all that has been spoken of him. Waiting down at the bottom of this mountain, as we'll, we'll see next week, is more ministry, battle, First off, in the form of a young man that's cruelly um, possessed and tortured by a demon whom the other disciples who have been down the hill while Peter, James, and John and Jesus had gone up the hill, uh, the rest of the disciples were unable to deal with this young man. But these verses that we're looking at today take place between the two, between the transfiguration and the demon-possessed boy. As the four men... Jesus, Peter, James, and John walk, descend the mountain. And as they do, Jesus gives them exhortation. He gives them instruction. And they ask him a question. So this morning we're going to look at a charge of silence, a question about Elijah, an unexpected answer, and a reminder about Jesus. First, there's a charge given, a charge of silence. Mark writes that this conversation, by the way, takes place there in verse 9 as they were coming down the mountain. And I think we can stop right there for just a minute and, and learn something right out of the gate here from this episode. We love, as Peter did, Peter loved that time up on the mountain and, you know, the, the, he wanted to prolong it. And we love the times each week. At least I do. I hope you do as well. Uh, Those times like this when we come together. Similar to what the the three disciples did. to, To have witness born to us of the glory of Christ and of the grace of God. That's what we do here. For us, this is done through the means of word and sacrament, through the means of grace that God has given to us in the church, given to us to exalt Christ, to be reminded of our need for and the overflowing provision of the grace of God. Here, as the song says, here we come His name to praise. Here we come to be reminded of the mercy of God in, the, in light of our sin. Here we come to be renewed in our faith each week. Here we come to be instructed in God's word. Here we come to give voice to our need and to our gratitude in prayer. All of that when we come, as the author of Hebrews says, we come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Those are the things we do. That's what we do when we gather as we, as it were, come to the mountaintop each week. And we love that. We are immeasurably blessed by that, beloved. 
But then comes the closing blessing and the doxology, and then it's time for us to head back down the mountain. We don't live on the mountain. We live at the foot of the mountain. We live on the plain. Sometimes we live in the valley. Ministry, Christian life takes place on the plain, in the valley, in the trenches. That's why it's so important for us that we take advantage of these weekly times on Mount Zion and fully bask in the love and the grace of God, the glory and the mercy of Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us through his word. Now, of course, between Sunday and next Sunday, we can't just be dry. We have to continue to be daily feeding on God and his word. But particularly when we come together, we are refreshed and reminded of our sin, reminded of God's provision for our sin, reminded of his grace, reminded of Christ and his, his wonder and his glory. As I mentioned, Jesus and the disciples have battles waiting at the bottom of the mountain, even as we have battles waiting when we walk out those doors today and every Sunday. And they have battles waiting, but they still must go down. Peter wanted to cast that time in stone to sort of freeze it, for a time at least, that time in the presence of of Moses and Elijah and the glorious Christ. But that wasn't to be. And as they come down the mountain here, Mark says in verse 9 that he, that is Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now can you imagine what a difficult thing that was that Jesus had given them to do? What a difficult thing he was asking them? I mean, if you had seen what they saw, If you had heard what they heard up on that mountain, you would be, I'm sure, as surely as they were, chomping at the bit to get down the mountain and to tell everyone what had taken place on the mountain. And now Jesus tells them, charged them, actually, given to them a solemn command, an order to not tell anyone. For now. And that would include the other nine disciples that had not come up with them. Do you think that Peter, James, and John were going to be asked about it? Where did you guys go? What happened up there? And they'd have to say, no comment. And the three are expected to obey this command. Again, it's a command, a charge. Now, we've seen Jesus, remember, give similar charges to those that he has healed, not to tell anyone. And then we read in the Gospels here that they do anyway. But the disciples should be able to be relied upon to obey this command. We've talked in previous messages about why this command is given, why it, why it is that he doesn't want people to know about this. And it's true particularly here with what went on up on the mountain Jesus' life and death to every detail was on a divine timetable laid out 
according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And premature spreading of of Jesus' identity could, humanly speaking, of course, lead to premature action being taken against him, such as will be taken when he gets to Jerusalem. Not only that, but the time for the declaration and the, the revelation of the glory of Christ on this level that they have just seen has not yet come. And that would definitively be done not through the transfiguration, but through his resurrection from the dead. That is the sign par excellence of the glory of Christ and the the, the sign that showed who he is. And so telling of this event will have to wait until after that. When that event, the resurrection, would give context for the transfiguration. Now, of course, by the time uh, Mark's gospel is written and by the time it's read... All of that has already taken place, and so this has been spread um, and was well known. Let me offer you one other reason for the charge here that Jesus uh, gave to the three. Go back, or think back at least, to the three disciples on the mountain with Jesus and what we've just looked at in the beginning part of chapter 9. They see Jesus transformed before them, transfigured, shining forth his glory. They see Elijah and Moses appear and talk to Jesus. We talked last time about the importance of that. And what does Peter do? Let's remember that too. How does he interpret this event? Well, he interprets it as something that needs to be saved, sort of frozen in time, to enshrine these three, build them the tent so that they can stay there. And perhaps so that He's thinking that perhaps Jesus now, this will be the glory being shown. This is the coming of the kingdom. And so all of this business with suffering and death still could be avoided. And so if it were you, would you really want Peter to come down and to start giving his opinion about what happened on the mountain? Probably not since the three had obviously not even understood it, how could they, at this point, reliably convey it in its context to others? They couldn't. There's much more teaching that needs to be done, especially the teaching which the resurrection will give to them, will bear on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That has to take place first. Again, before this event can be this event can be relayed to others. So Jesus forbids them to speak on it until then. And amazingly, we read that they were able to obey it. As hard as it must have been, verse 10 says that they kept the matter to themselves. But although they didn't share it with anyone else, it appears that they did continue to discuss it between themselves, between the three of them at least. Because Mark says that although they kept it to themselves, verse 10 says they were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. What's Jesus talking about? This is the second time that he has told us in just a short time about about this rising from the dead, being killed and rising. What does he mean by that? Now, it's not that they didn't believe and know about the resurrection. It's not that they don't believe in the resurrection. In general, they did. And and the scribes that are mentioned 
in just a moment. The scribes believed in the resurrection. And the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Though the Sadducees didn't. And, of course, that's why they were sad, you see. Sorry about that. But if you look at places like John 11, Jesus tells Martha that Lazarus will live again, which Jesus said to refer to the fact that he was going to raise him from the dead in just a couple of moments. But Martha's response, you remember it, when he said that your brother will will live again? She said, Martha's response was, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. So the Jewish people, through the teaching of the Old Testament, had a concept of the final resurrection. They would have believed in what we call the general resurrection. But this is different. This is Jesus talking about he himself specifically after he was going to be killed, after three days, rising from the dead. And the disciples were, they were still kind of reeling from from Jesus telling them that the Messiah, whom they were expecting, that he was going to suffer and that he was going to die. That was still messing up their minds. And now he tells them that in addition to that, he's going to rise again from the dead. That too, they didn't get. They didn't understand. Now, of course, we, in a couple of weeks, are going to be looking at that event, the resurrection, and exactly what it means. But we know already that He meant just what he said. He meant him being really and truly dead and then really and truly physically being raised from the dead, bodily raised from the dead. But at this time, that concept still did not have a firm footing in the minds of the disciples. And it is interesting that there's no record here that they asked Jesus about this. They really didn't need to. Remember back in chapter 8 and verse 31, you can let your eyes go across the page to that, uh, that he told them, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and, verse 32, and he said this plainly. So they should have had uh, some idea of this. But they don't ask him about this. However, they do have a question. The disciples have a question for Jesus that was bothering them about all of this, especially in light of what they had just witnessed up on the mountain. And that question they do ask. And it has to do with the question of timing and the question of prophecy. And so they ask Jesus, our second point here, a question about Elijah. And this point is just brief here, their question. Look at verse 11. He says, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Obviously, Elijah was fresh on their mind. They had just seen him up on the top of the mountain. And his appearance there caused them to reflect on something. And their question is, you know, if you, Jesus, are, as we believe you are, the Messiah... And if now you're talking about you dying, which again was still a fresh concept to them, the the Messiah dying, but if that's all true, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That is, before the Messiah comes. Now let's remind ourselves of what they're talking about even. 
Where did they, where did the disciples get this? We looked at it last time uh, we were here in Mark. So let me remind you of it again to refresh your memory of this final prophecy from the Old Testament in the closing paragraph of the prophecy of Malachi, um, mentioning uh, in that passage both Moses and Elijah, those same two that were speaking with Jesus on the mountain, Malachi wrote this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." So the promise before the coming of the Messiah that God would send the prophet Elijah to point people back to a remembrance of the law given by Moses, to bring about repentance and a turning of the hearts of the people back to a proper or to proper relationships, all of that in preparation for the Messiah's appearance. That's what was in the mind of the Jews. That was the basis for the Jewish expectation, which they still have today, by the way, of Elijah to come. And it also explains why some thought that Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy, because he came preaching repentance, which this Elijah was to come and to preach. And the three disciples then wonder about the timing here. And so they, they ask Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? They had seen Elijah on the mountain, but they, he had not come in the way prophesied by Malachi. And so they ask. And they get, thirdly here, an answer, an unexpected answer, an answer they didn't expect. Jesus answers their question and teaches them, really in a way that's very similar, if we think about it, to how he had taught them about the Messiah himself, about himself. Jesus had told them that they were right about who he was when Peter said, you were the Christ. Uh, He said, you're right about that, but they were wrong, remember, about how that truth was to work itself out and how it was working itself out. Jesus is the Messiah, but he had come not to instigate or to lead a civil or political upheaval, a liberation from Roman rule. Jesus as the Messiah had come to restore man to God and to bring the kingdom of God through his own life and death. And the same situation now applies with Elijah to a certain degree. They were right on some points, but wrong on another. First, he says, in verse 12, he says, you're you're right, and the scribes are right. Elijah does come first. The prophecy from Malachi does anticipate the coming of Elijah before the coming of the Messiah to restore all things, that is, to prepare the hearts of the people through repentance for the Messiah's coming, for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God by the coming of the king of the kingdom of God. And then down in verse 13, he he gets to the part that they were not expecting. The scribes were right about the timing, but wrong about the fulfillment. He tells them that, in fact, he says, but I tell you, 
Elijah has come. That prophecy of the forerunner has been fulfilled. I can imagine them scratching their heads and saying, what? (laughs) I don't get it. The prophecy had been fulfilled, not by literally Elijah rising from the dead in some way, but from one who came, as the scripture says, in the spirit and likeness of Elijah and clearly and fully fulfilled the prophecy from Malachi. Now, Mark, as he writes to us here, he, as he often does, he leaves the identification of the, the fulfiller of this grand prophecy implicit. Uh, Based on his earlier teaching here in the gospel, his audience would have easily made the proper connections here. But he doesn't say, Mark doesn't say or doesn't record here the specific explicit answer to that. But Matthew, in his record of this same event, this conversation, helps us out by making explicit how the disciples understood it. Back in Matthew, as he records this in Matthew 17, listen to this from verses 10 to 13. Again, this is parallel to what we're looking at in Mark. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come, that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. First, to restore all things. Or I'm sorry, I turned the wrong page. Then the disciples understood, explicitly here, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. It is John the Baptist that fulfills the prophecy of Malachi. A fact that Jesus made explicit again in Matthew, recorded by Matthew in chapter 11. There, Jesus says in Matthew eleven thirteen, he says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, that's kind of like saying, believe it or not, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, Jesus said, let him hear. In fact, we can go even one step further and point out the fact that this, that John the Baptist fulfilling the Elijah prophecy was known and was itself prophesied even before John was born. In the announcement of John's birth, uh, back in, or read or recorded in Luke chapter 1, when the angel came to John the Baptist's father before John the Baptist was born, uh, Zechariah, He said to him this in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. This is the angel speaking. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. There's that language right out of Malachi. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John the Baptist 
is the Elijah sent by God. He fulfills the function expected of Elijah, leading the people to renewal and preparation through repentance, thus preparing the way for the Messiah. According to Malachi, not only 4.5, but also Malachi 3.1, where he says, Behold, I send my messenger before you to prepare your way. John the Baptist is the one who fulfills that. But, he goes on, Mark, uh, saying that the reception that the one who came in fulfillment of that prophecy was not received as we would hope. Not received like you would think he would have been. Back in Mark chapter 9, Jesus says there that they did, verse 13 here, I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Now John was not hailed as the the promised forerunner of the Messiah. Though many came to him, many came and were baptized by him with that baptism of repentance. Many, though, did not. And he himself was mistreated, he was rejected, he was imprisoned, and his life was sought. And in that, John... John's life parallels at that very important point in his life, parallels the experience of, of all people, Elijah. Both Elijah and John were the bane and the target of the wrath of a wicked woman and a weak king. In Elijah's case, we read about it this morning. It was Ahab and his wife Jezebel. In John's case, it was Herod and his wife, Herodias. The difference is that where Jezebel failed to kill Elijah, Herodias succeeded in getting John silenced for good. In Mark 6, we read about that. So Jesus says to his disciples, you're right, the scribes are right, that Elijah must come first, and he has, in the person of John the Baptist. He fulfilled that prophecy as he went, as he came before the Messiah in the spirit and the power of Elijah, we read, and fulfilled all that had been expected of the prof- in the prophecy of Elijah through the words of Malachi. And he suffered as Elijah had. And we finally, this morning, as the Messiah, uh, we see that as the Messiah was going to suffer, John suffered. That brings us back to verse 12 that we skipped over a little earlier and to our last point, a reminder about Jesus. In verse 12, Mark says, Jesus records, or Mark records Jesus saying, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that just as John the Baptist, as the forerunner of Christ, was rejected, suffered, and in John's case was killed, so it was to be in the case of the Messiah himself. The Lamb of God, as John the Baptist proclaimed him, who takes away the sin of the world. How, Jesus asked, is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? To his disciples, Jesus says, don't let the the glorious event of the transfiguration, cancel out in your minds what I've been teaching you 
and what the scriptures have been teaching you, that the Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to suffer. He's going to be killed, and he's going to rise on the third day. And notice that he adds that this is just what the Old Testament says will happen. And the wording here, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt, well, that's a clear allusion to the words of Isaiah 53, especially to verse 3, that says that he, the Messiah, the servant of God, who at that point was some 700 years in the future, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus says it's written in the scripture that that's what's going to happen to the Messiah. Keep that in your mind. Another reminder, as Jesus now remembers continuing to teach his disciples, to prepare them for what's coming. Another reminder, in the context of the glorious transfiguration, that Jesus' path to glory in the resurrection runs through the valley of humiliation and suffering and ultimately death, even death on a cross. Beloved, as we make our way here toward what is known on the church calendar as Passion Week, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, we're reminded today in this passage of the coming suffering of Christ, the suffering of the Messiah, and of the fact that that suffering was for us, for our salvations, for the forgiveness of our sins, for the redemption of our souls, for our freedom, that we would be freed to serve God with gratitude and with joy always. And even though in our text at this point, the disciples were not at all clear of what to make of Jesus' promise that he would rise from the dead. We, on this side of the cross and on this side of the empty tomb, we are not at all unclear as to what to make of this promise. We are not in the dark now, but we know that that was God the Father's act showing that the Son's work of redemption was finished, complete, and accepted by God. And the proof that Jesus was and is the Messiah, the beloved Son of God, God blessed forever. And so people of God, let us in that knowledge, with that reminder today, in gratitude for the great salvation that he has obtained for us, let us worship Christ and let us serve him in this coming week. And to that we say, Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the prophecies that you give us that have been uh, fulfilled um, so wonderfully uh, and which give us that good and proper, confident hope that all of the others that have yet to be fulfilled will be. We thank you that you have sent Christ. And we thank you that that he has come and that he has lived and that he had died for us. And that you raised him from the dead to show that his work was 
truly finished as he hung on the cross, his work of redemption. We pray we would rejoice in Christ. We pray that we would worship him. And Lord, help us to serve him in this week as you would have us to do. And we ask it in his name. Amen.